Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler, and today I have another amazing episode to share with you. This time, we have a returning guest. His name is Zoltan Istvan. If you didn't hear my first episode with Zoltan, I definitely recommend you check it out. Uh, and, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with his background, he is an American transhumanist, journalist, entrepreneur, futurist, and currently a 2020 Republican U.S. presidential candidate uh, and has some announcements about that in this show. Uh, I had a great time talking to Zoltan, especially given all the things going on politically right now in the United States, as well as with the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I had some questions for him and he was uh, generous enough to come back on the show and answer them. So I really had a great time talking to him. I really thought this was a fun conversation and I think you will too. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Zoltan Isfan. Hey, Zoltan, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's a real honor to have you again to talk to and ask more questions. Hey, I'm stoked to be back. Thanks for having me. So during the, it's, it's pretty crazy time right now. We have the coronavirus pandemic is essentially in full effect. You warned us that we may hear some howling from uh, some of your neighbors uh, applauding and appreciating the, the hospital workers, uh, which I think is awesome. But in this time, it's, it's pretty crazy. And one of the reasons I wanted to, you know, bring you back on was to ask you about how this kind of crisis, kind of pandemic might have been different if we had better technology sort of interwoven with, you know, with humans to be able to maybe sooner identify certain health characteristics or issues related, you know, certain uh, warning signs that people might indicate that they are contagious or uh, something like that. I'm wondering if, if you've put any thought into or uh, have any ideas on how this pandemic could have been different with better technology. Well, absolutely. First off, you know, had I been present, you know, and running on the, the presidential campaign recently, um, I, you know, on day one getting into office, I would say, look, um, we need to eliminate all death, all disease. We need to eliminate biological death. I mean, that's kind of what transhumanists do. And since I'm a transhumanist, that's what I'd want to do. And so the very first thing transhumanists would be, you know, trying to do is creating universal vaccines for any type of flu, any type of the coronaviruses out there, any sort of kind of like ailment, including vaccines for cancer and things like that. And, um, you know, obviously when Trump got into office, that's not what he did. And when other people, even Obama got into office, that's not what they did. But as, a, as somebody who really loves science and technology, that's the, for, the foremost concern of mine is really the health of the American people. And I want to take care of death and disease. And so that's really just, you know, to give your listeners a kind of a, a, what I would do, that would be the very first thing I'd be doing on day one. So we wouldn't maybe even be dealing with things like SARS or Ebola or a coronavirus, whatnot, because we would have already had vaccines had we had a president there that really took existential risk 
seriously. And just so your listeners know, it's not just, you know, COVID-19. It's not just, uh, you know, other things. We have things that already exist out there. Like, you know, we have 15,000 live nuclear weapons between various countries. We have asteroid impacts that we have to worry about. We have, uh, you know, there, there are geostorms that can come from the sun. There, there are uh, super volcanoes. There can be, you know, a, a myriad other types of issues out there, even climate change that a president really needs to be dealing with uh, in a very real way. Because, you know, as some papers from Oxford University have said, we have a 19% chance of wiping ourselves out, the species, uh, you know, in, in, by the year 2100. And so I think uh, there's a lot we could do. But what would I do specifically, just to answer your question really quickly about it? Well, you know, Trump is slowing the ball by one month, and that made all the difference in terms of uh, the quarantine process. Now, I don't actually support the quor- a full quarantine as Trump is doing. But, you know, if you're going to go down that road, you really need to do it in a, in a a very militaristic way as China did it. And that's the way to contain it. And tr- Trump didn't take it seriously. He took it like a very cavalier attitude. And that's why we have 100,000 plus cases. And, you know, we're going to have a lot more. Yeah, I think it's certainly interesting, uh, especially with your perspective on all the other issues, you know, that, that are out there that, that we could face someday as, as well as the American approach to doing the quarantine. And I think, I, I wonder if there's sort of one in the same issue about the way Americans think about these problems. Uh, you see in other countries where they, you know, sort of trust the government more, maybe like in South Korea, it seems like they listen to the warnings uh, more seriously, take the warnings more seriously. In the United States, you see, you know, young people still out on spring break, really not heeding the warnings of officials. Um, and it's also one of those things with, with our government, it's hard to, I imagine it'd be hard to get funding for a pandemic in 20, you know, if it was 2019, it'd probably be really hard to get funding for extra ventilators and extra masks and do all that stuff when you don't have a real, uh, you know, sort of a, something that's on the front of everybody's mind about why we need those things. Have you given any thought into how well, to? No. Yeah. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, let's be honest, Trump cut the CDC, Trump cut all sorts of bills from the National Institute of Health and whatnot. And, you know, he was not, I'm not saying he was anti-science, but he was like, let us streamline the government and that includes cutting out parts that the government does science. And even though I really subscribe to libertarianism, uh, I realize when it comes to things like pandemics, this is like war. It, it's, not the, it's not like, oh, it's, you, know, you need less government. There are sometimes, you know, if, if Russia is invading our shores, you need more government at that time, even if you're a libertarian. And, and the non-aggression principle would support that. And this is the sort of same thing. We have something that's invading our country. It's a virus this time. And this is when we really need the government to step up. But of course, if you've cut those programs in the last two, three years, well, they're not there to support you. And, and that really is, is a problem. And this is why people really need to take existential risk much more seriously because, you know, uh, you know this coronavirus is not going to decimate the, the population um, very dramatically. You know, we might lose one or 2% of Americans in the worst case scenario uh, that's out there, mostly elderly people. You know, it's possible that we could have had something much more uh, dangerous. Let's and, and I don't mean dangerous in terms of like uh, you know deaths, because I think coronavirus is actually more dangerous than Ebola. But you know, the fatality rate from Ebola, for example, is much much higher. And we've been sort of lucky that something hasn't come that's been like Ebola, but uh, transmits as easily as COVID nineteen. And that could still be coming. So we need to take this stuff very seriously. And government has to spend some dollars to protect the people. And that just really means 
setting up organizations within the you know the federal federal government that sort of would do that and not cutting that. I mean, frankly, I blame Democrats and Republicans, you know, for for the situation that we find ourselves in with this with this mess. Uh, I'll, I'll give Trump a couple points of credit for at least talking about you know the the vulnerability with our global supply chain being so dependent on China and things like that. Because uh, uh, I think we've definitely seen that become an issue. But I blame you know the government as a whole and the way that we've been functioning for you know the lack of response. Uh, while, while all this was starting, you know, one side was more focused about impeaching the other. I, we, the whole thing seems petty political issues seem very small in the face of one of these well, pandemics. And, and let me just say, you're 100% right. I'm not, in no way am I an anti-Trump guy. I'm not. I actually think Trump's done pretty well in many, many things. But the reality is it has been the government. It, it's a response of a Congress that is, you know, 535 members of people that believe in an afterlife and don't worry about things like an existential risk. It's a president, the vice president, and nine Supreme Court justices where nobody really thinks in terms of survival of the species because they worry about, you know, how well Walmart is doing or what the stock prices of Amazon and things like that. And the reality is something like COVID-19 reminds the Americans and as well as the species as a whole that, hey, we can be taken out very quickly and we're all vulnerable. And that's why it pays to put a lot in the bank. And I don't mean the bank like, you know, money. I mean, terms of our protection of who we are as a nation, as well as a species. And I, you know, transhumanists have been banging the wall for the last 20, 30 years saying existential risk is as much of an issue as aging is because we can die from an asteroid impact, just like the dinosaurs. And yet we only spend a few million bucks looking at the stars, you know, tracking those things. So yeah, existential risk is absolutely huge. And it's the government, both parties. It's, it's, you know, and it's, it's also a lack of physicalness on Americans part, just not realizing that from one day to the next, our lives can be changed so dramatically as, as they have been. Certainly. And, and, uh, I wonder how to, because I, I, I agree with you. I, th- I think existential risk is, is such a, ma- you know, we should certainly be thinking about that more than we do, especially our leaders, our politicians and the people in government. But how do you motivate people to think about those things, especially when the number of existential risks are so numerous, you don't know which one could pose the biggest threat, which one is going to get the funding, which one is the one that, uh, you know, people can really rally behind and, and why. Uh, I, f- I feel like that's the largest challenge is to actually motivate the constituents to put pressure on politicians to, you know, want to invest in those kinds of things? Sure. Well, I mean, I can tell you how I decided to do it in 2016. And even though I didn't talk about this much, in, in, in just so your listeners know, in 2016, I was the uh, nominee for the Transhumanist Party, and I ran as its presidential candidate. And of course, I ran in 2020 uh, as, you know, as a Republican candidate. But we delivered in 2016 a Transhumanist Bill of Rights. And one of the six main points of this Bill of Rights, and we delivered it to the U.S. Capitol, was that a country should spend approximately 5% of its GDP dealing with the worry of existential risk. And, and that could be anything from, you know, your space industry, because there's a whole great argument to be made that we need to be able to get a certain amount of people off the planet should we, you know, should all of a sudden, like, you know, the core start melting or a sunstorm destroy, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different things. You've seen all the science fiction movies on the bad that can, that can happen. So, you know, uh, worrying about existential risk and dedicating 5% of your GDP to it actually involves a whole myriad uh, 
kind of bunch of things that you could essentially do to, to ensure the survival of the species under almost any scenario. And, you know, 5% is actually a very small amount. Just so you know, the amount that we're spending on existential risk right now is definitely less than 2%, probably less than a half a percent. 2% is what uh, we spend on science and technology in America right now of the entire budget. So it's, it's a very small amount. We spend 20% on defense, on bombs and bullets and things like that. But we spend very, very little on the things that can eliminate not just America, but the species as a whole. Yeah, that's that's an interesting idea. The five percent idea, I think, is pretty interesting. I haven't uh, heard of that one before. I kind of I like it. Um, I, I was curious about you know uh, some technologies that might help prevent some of these issues. Like uh, last time we spoke, we talked about you know getting essentially getting like microchipped and having you know advanced technology weaved in with you know human biology. Uh, and I, it's times like this that I wonder if that could be you know it seems like that'd be a lot more valuable now if you had some sort of like augmented vision that could tell if someone recently had a fever or recently traveled to China, how much that could curve things as far as your, you know, the way you interact with the world and avoid, you know, catching a disease. Well, of course, I mean, you know, we're probably seven to 10 years away from having cyborg eyes. You know, they already have like the FDA has already approved eyes, robotic eyes for the blind that allow them to see, um, and you know, like navigate a street or navigate a house or something like that. They're not perfect yet, but they're getting better and better. And uh, definitely within seven to 10 years, we think we'll have robotic eyes. Again, <laughs> barring that the coronavirus doesn't completely decimate the economy and like send all these projects, you know, the, the, the way of the dinosaurs. But the bottom line is probably within seven to 10 years, we would have these robotic eyeballs. And what I've told people before is people say, oh, I, you know, I don't know if I want a cyborg eye, but then they forget the, the benefits, even just from having a family, like I have two young daughters, these robotic eyes would detect, you know, carbon monoxide, for example, where carbon monoxide is not something you can smell, so you don't even know what's happening. And yet eyes, like robotics, can detect this kind of stuff or could detect smoke while you're sleeping. Well, you know, and, and, okay, then it can do all the other cool stuff like stream Facebook or whatever it is, or, or Netflix into your into your brain directly. But there's a real advantage to having some cyborg parts that would be able to determine and help people, you know, in a crisis like this. Now, I'm not saying I want to track everybody, but you know, if you had a cyborg eye and it was able to see infrared and, and see heat scanning and things like that on somebody, you'd be able to say, oh, you know, wow, this my neighbor is <laughs> running about point eight degrees hot, maybe he's starting to get coronavirus, you know, and stuff like that. And, and that might be very, very useful if we all had that, because then we know who to avoid. And then we wouldn't get it, we'd be able to isolate people very quickly. But of course, there's a very great reluctance on the society as a whole to embrace that stuff, because you could already start doing some of that stuff with AI facial recognition. Certainly, China's trying to do that. But um, right now, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's in, in America, that's, almost impossible. And this kind of brings us back to the idea why quarantine is failing in America, you know, whereas it succeeded in Asian countries. And the reason is because Americans love their liberty so much. They have, uh, they just don't like listening to the government. Uh, you know, they're, they're known for telling police officers off, you know, and, and we have this great love of liberty. And of course, that's a wonderful thing to have. That's why our democracy is so strong and things like that. But when it comes to something like, uh, you know, COVID-19, where you at, the quarantine has to be followed to the letter by every single member of society, 
that's when Americans tend to not be good at something like this. And that's why our numbers are going to be something like 5,000% higher than the Chinese in terms of the cases that we get. Um, and, and, you know, it's just because nobody wants to follow the rules. That's what Americans are good at. We don't follow the rules. And that's why we've been so successful. But you can also eat us alive sometimes. Certainly. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder about that and, and how long that will last, that sort of sentiment towards, you know, basically sacrificing privacy. I mean, the way I see it is it's, it's bound to happen anyways. Like people are, you know, your phone is probably already listening to you. There's already, you know, all these data points coming from each individual person, you know, why not just harness that data in a way that's, that's constructive for people in this kind of crisis? You know, you know, Google or Facebook probably has much of the data about who actually has the disease just based off of their, their search history or their internet history. So, uh, you know, it's like, why not unleash that to the public and just give it to everybody to have an understanding to help avoid the spread of the contagious further, the contagion further, especially when it's, you know, this kind of, you know, such a wide public health issue. Well, look, I agree with that. Even though I do subscribe to mostly libertarian views, I do think that our sense of privacy has already died and we ought to just get used to the new sense and we ought to trust our government a a little bit more when it comes to something like this, because I don't think that this is some great conspiracy theory or whatever. I just think this is like, wow, (laughs) Trump was blindsided by this. So was the Democrats. Everybody was. Nobody thought this was going to happen. And now we're just trying to get out of it without destroying our economy and without killing a bunch of old people. And, um, you know, if we had better technology, we're more able to kind of accept a loss of privacy, at least during this coronavirus time, we would be better off for it. But again, Americans are so, so hard headed. We were taught from kindergarten all the way up that, you know, George Washington and, the, you know, Abraham Lincoln and privacy and these, these classic kind of, uh, very liberty-inspired values. And um, unlike Chinese, I mean, if you've ever, you know, go to Asia, you, these, these people decide to fit in a mold, and they're often, you know, very, very, uh, you know, I guess astute in, in, in their academics and their studies, in the way their rigor is, and their discipline, whereas Americans, Americans really don't have a lot of that. But what we have is creativity and ingenuity, but that doesn't always help when it requires every single one of the 330 million Americans to listen, stay inside your house and not go outside. And that, again, I'm, I'm sure half of America's just like, screw that. I'm going to, I'm not hurting anyone, you know, and that's, that's where I think, you know, Asians and, and uh, Americans can be very, very different and it's hurting us this time. Yeah. It's interesting how that, uh, you know, sort of national personality, it's, it's a double-edged sword. It can either, you know, it's responsible for so much of the good things in the United States, but it, it can also come back to bite us in times like this. Um, so you've been inspired, motivated to run for president. Probably should have mentioned that earlier in our conversation here. What, what was your, uh, you know, what, what sort of like the, the primary drivers for you to, to take on such an undertaking? Well, you know, my real primary driver, driver is that President Trump has not delivered when it comes to science and technology in America. And, you know, this Make America Great campaign has ultimately, you know, especially now in COVID-19, has backfired, in my opinion, dramatically. I mean, he's done a great job with the economy pre this, and he did a pretty good job, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, opening some bridges like with North Korea and whatnot. But, you know, if, if I was the president, I would have been 
inspired to really try to push Silicon Valley to do things like create artificial intelligence, take the field of genetic editing, which is probably the most transformative field in the 21st century, and really explode it. But instead, you know, the Chinese have had the first genetically engineered babies born and this, that. And it's like Trump just kind of has been worrying about getting reelected and worrying about these industrial jobs, which mostly are dying. You know, most of the largest big companies in the world now are all technology companies. And so I, I ran for president to try to restore um, ingenuity and technology and science in America as the top drivers, especially as we enter the 21st century. I, I can't underestimate that uh, artificial intelligence and genetic editing are literally going to be the biggest companies in the world here, probably within 10 or 20 years, assuming disaster doesn't hit the planet. And um, right now, a lot of Republicans aren't even paying attention to any of those fields. Of course, where I live in Silicon Valley, they're all the rage, but uh, it doesn't seem like Washington's very interested. And that's why I ran, to try to make America interested in those, in those uh, initiatives. Are there some, because I wonder when it comes, because I agree, I think those initiatives are very important to focus on. I would love to see people, you know, uh, basically place more emphasis on those things, like, you know, really, uh, you know, look up to the sciences and things, uh, look up to that part of our culture, uh, rather than the stuff that we mostly focus on, uh, like, you know, the latest Netflix show or whatever. I'd much rather people like really be inspired and, and enthusiastic about science and technology. Are there any sort of tangible outputs that you, that you're, you know, that you could see as, as sort of light posts or, or, you know, uh, well, you know, was, to attract people to sure. Look, I was just reading in the wall street journal tonight, yesterday's edition, and they're talking about using genetic editing, which is when you change people's DNA structure, essentially to make it the way you want using DNA structure so that human beings no longer get any type of coronavirus or any type of flu. And you could probably make it so that human beings don't even get any type of cancer. And that's something we're probably five to 10 years away from experimenting with people on. But we could be 20 to 30 years away, depending on whether a president pushes initiatives and whether the Congress gets behind funding it. Or we could be maybe even three to five years if somebody like myself was to get in office and all of a sudden say, hey, we're going to cut the funding from defense. We're going to cut the wars and cut the bullet making. And we're going to put that all to making a human being better so that we don't get cancer. We have, uh, it's very hard to get heart disease. We genetically, you know, uh, treat ourselves or at least at the embryonic level, we have babies so the next generation just simply doesn't get the flu anymore. And that's the miracle of genetic editing. But unless you actually have a president and a, and a government that really sees that possibility, wants that possibility they need to drive that home and really be able to say to the voters look we're going to fund this because this is how we make it so that we never have a pandemic again uh you know right now that sounds pretty good but i can tell you like eight weeks ago everybody would have thought i was totally nuts by saying this stuff it's actually really interesting transhumanism is growing a lot because the coronavirus pandemic it's like all of a sudden people are saying wow these guys have been saying this stuff it seems so fringe before. Now it's sounding a little bit more normal. So, uh, you know, th there is that happening as well. Yeah. I mean, I think the bubble popped in a lot of ways. I mean, especially I know for my generation, you know, we'd never seen anything to this scale whatsoever. And I think it's really been, uh, you know, like 80 years since, since the United States has, has sort of experienced anything to this scale of, of everyone getting behind a certain, uh, directive like you know it's probably world war ii the last time people were this dialed in on a share on a similar cause i mean it's 
I think it's definitely eye-opening for a lot of people. I'm sure transhumanism is benefiting from that, uh, from that, you know, awakening there. Yeah, there's, there's no question. It's been, it's nice to see that. It's just, we're all a little bit bummed that it has to take a pandemic that's going to kill thousands of people in order for others to say, Oh, wow. You know, (laughs) these transhumanists are not so fringe. Maybe they're onto something. Yeah. I think that's nature. You know, it takes, it takes, uh, a jolt to wake people up. Right. You know, it's, it's, I, I wish things could go the other way, but it seems like you always need that action to have the reaction. Yeah. There's no question. So last election cycle, I was much more, uh, you know, tuned into like the third party, uh, you know, presidential races and I'm kind of tuned out of it right now. I haven't been paying too much attention, but I'm curious, uh, you know, what, where your, uh, thoughts are at as far as, uh, you know, the other parties in the race and, and where you would like to see them go. Well, sure. And so just so your listeners know, I'm, I haven't declared this officially yet, but one of the reasons I did drop out of the Republican uh, race, and not obviously I wasn't going to win it, um, but was to uh, uh, join the Libertarian Party, which I had been a part of before. I ran for uh, the governor or the gubernatorial elections in California in 2018, but was to run for the vice presidency in the Libertarian Party in 2020. Now, the Libertarian Party already has a bunch of great presidential candidates, like 10 of them, so I'm not planning on joining that. But interestingly enough, the Libertarian Party does vote for their vice presidential uh, nominee. It's not something that the presidential candidate gets to pick. He might have a little bit of influence on it, but the actual nomination of the vice president of the Libertarian Party in 2020 is done by uh, some type of voting mechanism, usually done um, uh, at the national uh, uh, kind of meeting that they're going to be having here. We don't know if they're going to have a convention anymore because, uh, of course, the convention is supposed to be May 4th um, but, uh, in Texas, but we're not sure that a convention will take place anymore. So it might be now virtual something or something of that, uh, you know, that type, but either way, a presidential candidate and a vice presidential candidate will be picked. And I am planning on running uh, for the libertarian party as the vice presidential, uh, candidate and hoping I will win that. That's incredible. I think that's, uh, I, I also like that the idea of using democracy to elect the vice presidential candidate as well. What, what a novel idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it used to always be like that. And then all of a sudden, like big money and big business and lobbying efforts and people wanted it needs to be me. And, I, and you know, I, I can see there's, there's arguments for both sides, but there's no question that from a democratic perspective, that is the right thing uh, to do because the party often knows better than the candidate itself. And then we give too much power to the one the presidential candidate to make all these decisions. So, you know, it's kind of nice because you can balance it out. Now, I'm not probably uh, qualified to run um, as the, the libertarian presidential candidate. And the reason is because I'm not the perfect libertarian. Even though I've been a libertarian for like 30 years, it's quite funny. The libertarian party has their like perfect, it's like somebody who like doesn't even support driver's licenses. And I'm a little bit more into the system than that. But I actually bring in a lot of the left, uh, kind of a lot of the Andrew Yang people and a lot of that kind of uh, crowd. And um, so I might be a good complement to a, a very strong-minded libertarian. And, um, and I was actually asked to run by some people, some members of the, uh, kind of, uh, of the staff of the Libertarian Party. And so I said, hey, you know, you should throw your hat in the ring. You might be a good candidate for it. So we'll see how that, that turns out. And you'll probably have an announcement uh, next week. That's excellent. And, and when, I mean, when it comes to the, the Andrew Yang, you know, folks there, 
it's so interesting to see. It's like almost as if he just stayed in the race. He'd be, you know, so relevant right now that everybody is talking about universal basic income and getting some sort of check from the government uh, that was, never was needed. Didn't seem like it was needed eight weeks ago, but now seems like the most important political point that anyone's brought up in years. I think that's really interesting. Where do you fall on the universal basic income idea? Well, I mean, I have supported universal basic income in the 2016 race. So it's actually Mr. Yang himself, who is, uh, uh, I'm not saying he copied me, but I have, you know, I have, we have all supported it for a long time. And I have supported it from uh, 2015 onward. In fact, a lot of my 2016 campaign was based on it. However, I got to say, though, that Mr. Yang and my version of universal basic income are totally different. Uh, you know, Mr. Yang wants to use taxes to some extent to pay for his, whereas I want to use federal land. And for those who don't know, uh, I have a federal land dividend and about 50% of the Western, uh, <clears throat> most Western 11 uh, U.S. states uh, in America are empty federal land. And we're talking about approximately 150 to $200 trillion worth of natural resources on that unoccupied federal land. And so I would like to take that unoccupied federal land, lease it out to big business, and then use the proceeds to fund a universal basic income for everyone. My universal basic income is about 70% higher than Mr. Gaines, and it does not raise taxes in any way. The only dilemma is, though, that mine uses natural resources, so therefore the environmentalists might not like it. But mine is bipartisan in the sense that Republicans will rather support my universal basic income than Mr. Yang's, which raises taxes. So, uh, and, and the Democrats like my policy because I'm still helping out poverty. And so, you know, but the, you know, I, what I would like to say at least is that beyond my plan and Mr. Yang's plan, there's a number of other plans too. And maybe one day what it'll be that we can get this thing passed. And I don't mean a, a Trump $1,200 little check for everybody. That's not going to help much. But maybe one day when we can get a universal basic income for everyone per month in America, which is my goal, you know, we could combine a bunch of different types of plans all in one and find a way to actually help America get out of poverty. Because for me, the universal basic income does two things. It ends poverty and it also stops the growing inequality. And I just, I don't think people realize that as long as inequality is growing in America, at some point it hits a, a pitch when people bring out their guns and say enough is enough. And so we have to, you know, if, whether you're wealthy or not, whether 1% or not, you have to be careful that the people don't just get so upset that they just, you know, they cause a civil war. And that's one of the reasons why I think basic income is so important. We want to keep all Americans happy. I wonder about that uh, quite a bit as sort of where that pitch is and, and if it's, you know, closer or farther away than we think. Because in some respects, uh, you know, the, the inequality is great. In other respects, you know, uh, especially with increased technology, the, the bridge between, uh, you know, a lower income person and a super rich person as far as the kind of access to information and entertainment and those sorts of things are very similar. And I wonder if that has sort of, you know, it kind of cools tensions down in a way uh, where, you know, people are, you know, it's, it's not as dramatic as it used to be compared, you know, as far as like lifestyle, you know, if technology can continue to increase to make, you know, even lower income people's lifestyle that much better uh, and that much, you know, sort of more comfortable, like where is that pitch? Well, you know, I, I don't really know where exactly it is. What I do know, though, is that if we don't find a way to keep 
lower income people satisfied as they lose their jobs to automation, then they're going to pick up guns and shoot at the rich people. I mean, I think that's, that's what history teaches us. And we should always pay attention to what history teaches us because it repeats itself. And so it's really up to people, the rich, and I think the, the well-to-do people to say, how can we make it so that society enters into the transhumanist age that's as democratic as possible and fulfills equality as much as possible? And, um, you know, that's very hard work, but the, a good start, a great start, perhaps the best and most important start is a universal basic income. I, I think the UBI will definitely be part of the plan. Well, uh, Zoltan, you know, I really appreciate you sharing your insights in these things. Are there, are there, you know, any other sort of points that you want to leave off with or any, anything else that you'd like to discuss that, uh, you, know, you feel would be relevant to, you know, the times at hand or even, uh, related to your, your upcoming race? No, I just think, you know, uh, for your listeners out there, you know, this is an opportunity uh, uh, maybe once in a century where we have to hang out with our best friends or our families or whatever it is. And it's a good time to read a book. It's a good time to do things, maybe exercise, just do push-ups. you know, whatever it is, take advantage of this and don't get depressed just because you're locked in your house all day. This will pass and we will overcome and come out and try to find something inside yourself that you've been wanting to do that you can do in your house uh, for these next two, three, four, five weeks and, uh, and, and let it make this turn into something unique because I think this can go both ways. There are some people that it's terrible for and there are other people that are like myself who are like, wow, I'm, I haven't read a book. I'm, you know, I've been so busy on the campaign trail and all this other stuff. All of a sudden, I got a bunch of books I'm reading. I got a bunch of uh, articles I'm writing, stuff that I finally have time to sit down for besides the fact that I'm teaching my two kids school. So, you know, I mean, it, it's all about how you interpret it and uh, everyone try to make the best of it and don't. Don't overeat yourself. Don't overdrink yourself because the whole point of this, this quarantine is that less people die. But if we all gain weight, we're all going to die quicker because obesity is a known factor for, for people dying quicker from heart attacks, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, and I, I, I worry that um, what we do to the economy and what we do to ourselves during these five, six weeks has also a negative effect. effect. So let's try to stay, you know, try to find the best of it and actually have it so be a really memorable experience. So this is just a, a few words of support because I just talked to my mom downstairs who lives with me and she said, oh, I'm going crazy because I can't go anywhere. And, you know, she's with her grandkids. She's with her son or daughter-in-law. You know, I mean, it, it, it's not bad. And I think if we just all make the best of it, we'll get through this and then we'll see light at the end of the tunnel. I certainly appreciate that op optimism and I'm sure others do as well. Yeah, stay stay healthy and stay productive. There's there's never been a better time to do it, and and uh, you know I I you know wish you luck in the in your upcoming race here, and and you know if there's anything the supporters can do to to assist you besides going out and purchasing the transhumanist wager, uh, you know let us know. Sure, well just you know Google my name Zoltan Ishfun because I've written 230 plus articles, mostly opinion pieces. So if anything, any question you have, whether it's crazy things like aliens or it's microchips in the brain or if it's exoskeletons climbing exoskeleton suits climbing mount everest i've written about it so uh just google it and you'll find a fun story whether it's new york times or vice wherever it's all out there so it's a lot of stuff good stuff to read especially if you're stuck at home i appreciate that zoltan and yeah hope we can connect again in the future thanks for coming back on and, and sharing all this info oh absolutely thanks so much for having me 
Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed that episode, please hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at KWC pod on Instagram at knowledge without college podcast. You can find me Patrick Butler at Patrick Butler zero zero on Instagram and Twitter. I encourage you to send over any feedback you have. If there's any guests you'd like to hear on the show, any topics you'd want to hear discussed. I want to know about it. I want to hear your feedback and opinions. So please help me make this a better experience for you. And I look forward to hearing from you. Have an excellent day and thanks for listening.